Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I didn't plan this, but this is one of those instances where current events line up with what I wanted to talk about for the show. Last week, Chinese President Xi Jinping gave a speech about Taiwan, a lovely island that I just visited last month. Xi called Taiwanese independence a, quote, dead end, and said that reunification with China was inevitable, and then said a whole bunch of things about destiny. The Chinese president said that he preferred a peaceful reunification, but would not rule out war. Taiwan, for its part, continued to not be governed by mainland China. There are a lot of regions in the world that are gray zones when it comes to whether or not they are nation-states, whether or not they're countries in their own right. There's Western Sahara, there's the Palestinian Authority, there's Northern Cyprus, there's Scotland, if you listen to some Scottish people. But probably the biggest and most significant country that isn't a country, or state that isn't a state, is Taiwan. And when we ask whether or not Taiwan is a real country or a real state, we're asking, is it part of China? Does China have governance over it? Does it have governance over China? Do those two things belong together? Well, let's take a look at Taiwan's history and see how it converges and diverges with that of mainland China. The first human beings to live in Taiwan probably did not come from what we now call China. Early inhabitants of the island were part of the Polynesian diaspora, so the human beings that populated Hawaii, Easter Island, and even as far as Madagascar, that is the same big migration that also populated Taiwan. We can't pin down the exact year when the first humans set foot from their boat onto the shores of Taiwan, but it was probably sometime around 3000 BCE, so some time ago. So for the vast majority of Taiwan's history, it has been kind of an island unto itself, not really attached to or having much to do with the Chinese mainland. The native Taiwanese, who by the way are still around, have a distinct culture and language and lineage separate from mainland China. The first Chinese records for the island are from the 3rd century CE. That's 3,000 years, and then some, where China and Taiwan were just kind of existing next to each other, and one was not part of the other. We have possible Japanese records of Taiwan from the 7th century, and Portuguese records, which are the first European records we've got, from 1544. But... Even after these first encounters between China, Japan, and Portugal, with the island we now call Taiwan, or sometimes Formosa, it still remained, again, largely its own thing. The Chinese, Japanese, and Europeans knew about it, but they didn't really settle it, at least not in numbers, until even later, until the 1600s. Now, I'm going to skip over a lot of things here, because... This episode is about answering that central question, is Taiwan a country? 
But I just want to briefly say that the history of Taiwan in the 1600s is wild, and I kind of want to do a more expansive series on it later, because during that time, both the Spanish and the Dutch both ruled part of, but never all of, the island. And this is a time period where the name Formosa first appears. It basically means beautiful island in Portuguese, and that name has stuck around until basically now. And the Dutch and the Spanish never really had a super great hold on Taiwan, as they spent a fair amount of time fighting against the environment, the native population, and, on more than one occasion, each other. Also, there were pirates. There were corsairs from China, Japan, and other areas, like what we now call Korea and the Philippines, who thought that Taiwan was a great place to stop and do, you know, pirate stuff. Because this was an island far away from established urban centers, filled with headhunters and Dutch people. Good place to hang out and, you know, be piratical. However, there were one group of foreigners that did manage to make a permanent impact on Taiwan during this time. And that was people from what we now call China. And I'm choosing my words carefully, saying people from what we now call China, rather than Chinese, because the first big population from mainland China wasn't Han Chinese. They were not members of China's dominant ethnic group. Rather, they were members of the Hakka ethnic minority from southern China. See, during this same time period, the 1600s, which is, again, wild, we have Dutch people, the Spanish, headhunters, pirates, and also the fall of the Ming dynasty. Now, again, I am skipping so much because we have the fall of an entire Chinese dynasty as background noise to this, but in 1661, Ming loyalists fled to Taiwan and established a small kingdom that acted as a kind of Ming holdout while China itself fell to the rule of the Qing dynasty. For some time, this kingdom, known as the Kingdom of Tungning, attracted a wave of Chinese settlers, that is, Hakka settlers, from the mainland. See, the new Qing dynasty attempted to massively reorganize coastal towns in southern China, saying that people should go over here rather than here, go over there rather than there, and plenty of Hakka folks, instead of bowing to the Qing's new orders about where their fishing villages and ports should be, just left. They relocated and joined other Ming loyalists on Formosa. This wave of migration did end up making kind of a permanent foothold on Taiwan. I should add that like the Spanish and the Dutch, when folks from mainland China arrived on Taiwan and started living there, their relations with the native Taiwanese tribes was not great. In this whole narrative, you gotta feel bad for the native Taiwanese because their island just keeps getting invaded by different people, and, as much as they resist it, they are not able to really keep the island for themselves. Foreigners just keep showing up, taking their stuff, and we haven't even gotten to the Japanese yet. But anyway, in 1683, the short-lived kingdom of Tungning finally surrendered to the Qing dynasty. And here, finally, Taiwan becomes an official part of China. Sort of. Taiwan became part of China kind of in the way that 
Guam is part of the United States. That is, it was a far-off island in the Pacific Ocean that lots of people forget about. Apologies if I have any listeners from Guam. I'd like to think that I haven't forgotten you. Hello. One of the Qing emperors is even said to have called it a ball of mud beyond the pale of civilization. And one government official said of Formosa that it was the size of a pellet. Taking it is no gain. Not taking it is no loss. So, unlike Xi Jinping, it's not like Chinese emperors in the 1600s thought much of this island that had formerly been inhabited by pirates and the Dutch. The first big wave of Han Chinese settlers did arrive in Taiwan in the back half of the 1600s, after the surrender of the Kingdom of Tongying. But the Qing dynasty actually tried to pretty severely limit emigration. So, back then, the mainland Chinese government really tried to downplay the association between Taiwan and the mainland. One of the things they didn't want was people abandoning their jobs and land and everything that they were doing and establishing ties with Taiwan. Meanwhile, the British, French, and Japanese were all flexing their imperial muscles, and they decided that they wanted to make a play at taking over Taiwan. And they did this over and over and over again throughout the 16, 17, and 1800s. And expeditions to the island would often end in bloody fights with the native Taiwanese population, who were very happy to fight with and behead any would-be imperialist. Now, Taiwan just kind of hung out this way for about two and a half centuries. You had a mixed population of the native folks, Han Chinese and Hakka Chinese. Every so often, people would try to take it over, and they would get repelled and have their heads cut off. It was great. It was a good system. Until the end of the 1800s in 1895, when China lost the Sino-Japanese War. And in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, the Qing Dynasty ceded Taiwan, that ball of mud beyond the pale of civilization, to the newly resurgent Imperial Japan. This is the last thing that any agreed-upon, legitimate, mainland Chinese government will do with Taiwan. The last time that a government that everybody agreed on was the real Chinese government held Taiwan was in 1895. And the last thing that that mainland government that everybody agreed was the real Chinese government did with it was give it away to the Empire of Japan. Japan controlled Taiwan for 50 years, from 1895 to 1945, the end of World War II. And it's during these five decades that the island really got industrialized. However, the industrialization that came from Imperial Japan came at a cost. Japan did not have a light touch with its colonies, be it Korea or Manchukuo or Taiwan. In Taiwan, they had policies familiar to you, if you've listened to the series on North Korea, they imposed Japanese language, culture, and religion. They forced many people who had native Taiwanese names or Han Chinese or Hakka names to have Japanese names. And they were constantly putting down rebellions 
by the native population. And here, that native population includes both indigenous Taiwanese people and Hakka and Han Chinese. Meanwhile, on the Chinese mainland, there's a giant civil war. You have nationalist and you have communist, and Taiwan, this formerly Chinese island, is being rather badly treated by a rival imperial power. Taiwanese liberation became a talking point, both for Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek, and this ball of mud beyond the pale of civilization, once it finally gets mistreated by your enemy, well, that's when it becomes important to mainland politicians. But so far in our story, Taiwan's status has been pretty straightforward. It's been its own thing. It's been partially ruled by the Spanish and Dutch and pirates. It's been under Chinese rule, but kind of as a distant thing. It's been under Japanese rule. In all of these instances, Taiwan's status was unambiguous. Well, it's about to get ambiguous. Japan declared war on China in 1937, and that meant that they declared war on both the People's Republic of China, that is Mao and his gang, who eventually won and took over and were communist, and Chiang Kai-shek, the Republic of China, the nationalists who were not communist, but Chiang Kai-shek was not above having occasional alliances with the Soviet Union, but that's outside the scope of this episode. The Qing dynasty had long since fallen, and the ROC was seen as the successor state to the Qing dynasty, even though they really hadn't secured a win yet. They really hadn't taken care of this whole, you know, also beat the communists and win World War II thing. But in 1945, nationalist troops ended up taking Taiwan. October 25th, 1945, was declared by the Republic of China Taiwanese Retrocession Day. There was much rejoicing. So, right now, we have a government that is only kind of sort of the Chinese government declaring possession of Taiwan. That was 1945. Chiang Kai-shek, eventually, realizing that the war was lost and the communists were taking over, you know, actual China ended up retreating to this former Japanese colony at the end of the 1940s, in 1949. However, even though Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists had lost the war, the United States and the United Kingdom and basically everyone who wasn't a communist recognized them as the legitimate Chinese government. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union and the other Warsaw Pact and communist countries recognized the People's Republic of China as the legitimate Chinese government. But we'll get to that in just a moment. What we still haven't resolved, though, is whether any Chinese government legally had possession of Taiwan. Now, certainly the Republic of China had taken it from the Japanese, so you could make a kind of retrograde argument, not based on anything legal, that they had it by right of good old conquest. But there are also two major treaties that severed Japan from Taiwan that the nationalists later held up as evidence that Taiwan was theirs and therefore Chinese. First, there was the Treaty of San Francisco, wherein Japan formally renounced, quote, all right, title, and claim to Formosa, unquote, and several other bits of territory that it had taken over during World War II and before. My favorite thing to discover while researching this episode is that that treaty, the Treaty of San Francisco, 
also forced Japan to renounce any right or claim to Antarctica. I suppose that was important in 1951 when that treaty was written. The Republic of China, though, was not a signatory to the Treaty of San Francisco, and in 1952, Japan signed another different treaty with the ROC called the Treaty of Taipei, and in that, Japan also renounced any claim to Taiwan. Neither of these treaties, though, specifically stated that Taiwan would be the territory of the ROC or the PRC or anything else that could be called China. They only made it clear that the island was not Japanese. They didn't say that it was Chinese. Also, the ROC here didn't say that they were an independent Taiwanese government, even though that is de facto what they were. No, they claimed to be the government of the whole of China, and a good amount of the non-communist world was treating them as such. The ROC competed in the Olympics as China until 1948, and the United States and several other non-communist countries kept recognizing them as the one legitimate Chinese government. This somewhat rankled the Eastern Bloc, and in 1950, the Soviet delegation walked out of the United Nations protesting the fact that the ROC was there representing all of China when the PRC were the ones who were actually, you know, governing China. And honestly, the Eastern Bloc had a point, because by then the ROC was representing nothing but Taiwan and the actual Chinese government who was, you know, doing government things on the mainland was shut out. But what's really important here is that nobody is actually claiming that they are the Taiwanese government. We just have two separate entities claiming that they're the Chinese government. The question of whether or not Taiwan is its own thing, well, that's not even something people are bringing up. Everyone is just kind of acting like it is part of China. Even though really at this point, China and Taiwan were two separate governments. What happened on the island and what happened on the mainland was completely separate in fact, even if no one, not Mao Zedong, not Chiang Kai-shek, not the United States or the United Kingdom or the United Nations, were willing to admit that yet. The West kept up the charade that the ROC was the quote-unquote real Chinese government until the 1970s. However, at the end of the 1960s and in the early 1970s, there was a thawing of relations, and in 1971, the PRC cemented its role as the one true China by securing the Chinese seat in the United Nations. And the following year, in 1972, Richard Nixon visited Beijing. And I really want to emphasize here that Nixon's visit to China, that was the culmination of years of diplomatic thawing between the PRC and the West. That was the culmination of a larger diplomatic project. That was not the whole of it or the beginning of it. That was what they did at the end when they knew that there was a kind of detente already in the wind. Now, honestly, this was good because the United States and other Western countries having at least some kind of relationship with China, which is kind of a big deal part of the world, is probably a good idea. Even if those countries don't like each other, it's probably good that they talk to each other. But this meant that Taiwan was kind of twisting in the wind. At that point, Chiang Kai-shek was still 
very much alive, and he was, I imagine, probably fairly incensed that the world's superpowers were no longer taking him seriously as the ruler of all of China. But let's cut back to Taiwan. What's been happening there? Well, Chiang Kai-shek was not a big believer in democracy. His rule was marked by repression, martial law, and his political opponents just kind of conveniently disappearing in the middle of the night. When he died in 1975, his son, Cheng Qingkuo, took over as leader of the Nationalist Party, which really meant that he took over as leader of all of Taiwan. And Taiwan really got lucky with Cheng Qingkuo, because the son did not inherit his father's appetite for absolutism and authoritarianism. Under the younger Chang, Taiwan liberalized. It actually got opposition parties. It actually had free and fair elections and a press that was allowed to say things about the government that were critical. And nowadays, it's a functional democracy with a lot of things that China very specifically doesn't have. It's got multiple competing parties. It's got politicians who don't like each other. It has debates. It has protests. It has diversity of opinions. Man, I was just there, and actually there was a uh, protest that was in solidarity with the Yellow Vest protest in France, you know, going on in the middle of Taipei near the presidential palace. And I challenge you to find anything like that in mainland China nowadays. So it's especially impressive that Taiwan, kind of like South Korea, was able to transfer from being an authority military dictatorship to a democracy without having a civil war. And that's where we are now. In 2019, we have multiple parties in Taiwan. We have the Nationalists. They're still around. We have the Green Party, and they have traded majorities in the parliament and traded the presidency a couple of different times. And there's still the question, is Taiwan a country? Well, the Chinese government in Beijing says, no, Taiwan is part of China. The Nationalist Party in Taiwan, at least on paper and officially, they also say no. The more conservative Taiwanese political party still hold officially that their government is the legitimate government of all of China. Meanwhile, Taiwan's Green Party basically says yes, that Taiwan is its own thing, but they don't go out and declare independence. That would be somewhat dangerous. If you had a Taiwanese politician, even a radical and liberal one, go out and say, hey guys, we're our own thing now when we have been for some time, and the last time China had anything to say about us was 1895, well, that would be an invitation for something of a crisis. But they govern as if Taiwan is an independent country. In fact, one of the subtle changes that Taiwan has made inside its government, for instance, is that it no longer pretends to elect people to the legislature representing provinces in mainland China. Instead, everybody in the legislature is representing, you know, Taiwan. Very few states recognize Taiwan diplomatically, and those that do do not recognize it as an independent country. They recognize it as the legitimate government of all of China. And there are 18 of them, and they're not especially, let's say, influential on the world stage. Sorry, Palau. I'm sure you're great. But not a lot of other countries are going to model international policies based on what you guys do. The one big notable independent state that recognizes Taiwan, 
or at least recognizes the Republic of China, is Vatican City. For a whole bunch of reasons, the Vatican does not recognize the People's Republic of China. The government of China likes to have a say in who becomes a bishop or an archbishop or a cardinal in China. And the Chinese Catholic Church is kind of this weird pod person of a church that is only kind of sort of affiliated with the real Catholic Church. It's a whole thing. Anyways, the Vatican recognizes Taiwan, and they're probably the most influential state to do so. However, that's politics. Let's talk about what's really important. Let's talk about the high jump and figure skating. Because since 1984, Taiwan has been in the Olympics. They have not competed as the Republic of China or Taiwan. They have competed as Chinese Taipei, a name that they have to use to not rankle China's feathers. And businesses deal with Taiwan as if it is its own thing. When major companies like Apple and Sony move into Taiwan, they abide by local regulations because those are the ones that matter. When foreign entities are looking at compliance measures, they look at the Taiwanese one because their concern is not geopolitics. Their concern is the reality on the ground. The regulations, or lack thereof, passed in Beijing are not the ones that matter. There's also the issue of language. There is no one language called Chinese. Obviously, there's Mandarin and Cantonese, but the type of Mandarin spoken in Taiwan is a bit different than the Mandarin spoken in northern mainland China. What's more, you also still have some native indigenous languages, and the Mandarin spoken in Taiwan uses classical rather than quote-unquote simplified Chinese characters. So, if you learn to read in China and you go to Taiwan, you will have maybe some difficulty with street signs, menus, newspapers, books, etc., because, I'm sorry, mainland China, Mao Zedong, ruined your writing system! Simplified Chinese is a whole thing. But why does China care? Why does China even want Taiwan? After all, China is doing great. It's a big economic superpower with a billion people. It's got enough territory already. Why doesn't it just, like, chill out and tell Taiwan to go about its merry way and put an end to all this? Well... This is just speculation on my part, so take it with a grain of salt. But China wanting Taiwan might have more to do with what's going on in Western China than with the island itself. See, Taiwan is not the only um, rogue province of China. There's also Tibet, and there's also the Western area of China filled with the Muslim Uyghur population. And both the Uyghur provinces and Tibet do have very real independence movements. And if China were to allow Taiwan to slip away and be independent, that would be very encouraging to Uyghur or Tibetan independence movements. And if you were a Chinese authoritarian who wanted to lock down the various separatists inside your country, you wouldn't let any of them, even the ones that are default independent already, go at all. That's just, again, speculation on my part. Lastly, though, I want to mention that there is one more thing that does indeed recognize Taiwan as a country. I've mentioned Palau, Vatican City, the Olympics, and private corporations, but this is maybe the most important thing of all, and that is the 1994 Ode to Geography, Yakko's World. 
when Yako Warner of the Animaniacs listed off the nations of the world, he listed all of them at the time, and a few regions like the Caribbean, he put that in there somewhere. But in one verse, he mentioned Mongolia, Laos, and Tibet, Indonesia, the Philippine Islands, Taiwan. So, thank you, Yako Warner. Thank you for including Taiwan there. Thank you for realizing the reality of the situation, and in your Nations of the World song, listened to and sung along by so many adolescent geography dorks, Taiwan, which is kind of a country, was there. And one more thing, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, all of you. Thank you, listeners, for listening, and thank you, all of you who support this independent podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. We couldn't do it without you. Also, go to Apple Podcasts to give us ratings and reviews, stars, words about how awesome we are. Uh, talk to me if you want on social media. I'm on Twitter. You can yell at me there. I am at Joe Streckert, J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Also on Facebook, the show is facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you again for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. India, Pakistan, Burma, Afghanistan, Thailand, Nepal, and Bhutan. Cambodia, Malaysia, then Bangladesh, Asia, and China, Korea, Japan. Mongolia, Laos, and Tibet, Indonesia, the Philippine Islands, Taiwan. Sri Lanka, New Guinea, Sumatra, New Zealand, then Borneo, and Vietnam. Tunisia, Morocco, Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe, Djibouti, Botswana. Mozambique, Zambia, Swaziland, Gambia, Guinea.